0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Western Hunting Hub podcast. Today I have Chaz Holder on. Uh, Met him through an acquaintance and a wildlife biologist uh, in the private sector, and new hunter so i'm excited to bring him on to talk about a couple of topics that uh, are not new but have a new perspective and twist on those those questions so i'm i really enjoyed the conversation uh and we have a couple of really good takeaways here so make sure you give it a listen and as always if you're enjoying the podcast if you would give it a follow like a review of some sort on wherever you're listening and uh, if you could share it, share it with somebody, tell them about the podcast. Say, hey, this episode was good for this or that. Uh, or if you got podcast ideas or guests or yourself, if you want to be a guest, I'd love to have you on. i um, getting freed up on some of my guests. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the West Runio podcast. Today I've got Chaz, Hol- Chaz Holder on, and uh, we're going to talk kind of some wildlife and biologist related stuff and kind of some new hunter related stuff so welcome to the show chaz Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more and and we'll get rolling
2: yeah clint thanks for having me uh like you said my name is chaz holder i'm a wildlife biologist for a consulting firm in texas i deal with pretty much anything west of the mississippi river in terms of wildlife surveys um Endangered species work, I do a lot of wetland protection things, Um, you know, just anything environmental, really, when it comes to infrastructure, oil and gas, wind and solar, I do a little bit of everything.
1: So a lot of the West Texas related stuff, or just anywhere?
2: Well, actually, I spend most of my time in eastern New Mexico, uh, working on the BLM land. But yeah, West Texas. I, I've been up to Oklahoma, Colorado, Kansas. Spent all almost all summer 2020 out in Nevada. Been out to California as well. So
1: what, all over the place. I'm gonna switch two questions around for you that I had set up. But okay, what give us a day to day or like some of the ba- major projects that you're working on, and just just pick one or two and and let's dive into it. I'd be curious to hear kind of what's What's in the works in in that world?
2: Yeah, so well, I mean, a good one that everyone likes to talk about. I started my career doing bird and bat mortality monitoring on a uh, thirty five of the hundred and ten uh, wind, wind turbines that we would survey for, and we would just walk transects every day um, looking for collisions, and, you know, fatalities, seeing just seeing what was out there, and then. The other aspect of it was, um, they called it mortality monitoring, or or, uh, we would look to see how long a a carcass would last, carcass persistence. And, you know, so if we would have something like, let's say, a bobwhite quail, uh, out here in West Texas, we're dealing with an eye worm. And so quail are going blind, and they fly into the towers quite often. And so, you know, we'd find a quail carcass on a tuesday and then wednesday thursday friday saturday sunday we would go visit that carcass until it disappeared just trying to figure out you know how long is stuff lasting how often are we having collisions um, and you know it's crazy you would think that there'd be a lot more but that fall migration when we had our cranes and our geese come down just we had about a four-day period
1: collisions where... collisions with what
2: with the actual
1: turbine. Oh, okay. Okay. That's what I was envisioning. And then I zoned out for a second. I was like, no, wait, am I, <laughs> where was I again? So yes. Okay. So g- collisions with those. Cause I was thinking that the actual collision would be more of the story and the numbers, but you're focusing on not just the collision, but then afterwards, that's what's kind of threw me off there for a sec. Yeah. So
2: the way that the they kind of calculate that total number of collisions is, um, you, you go out and you put carcasses. So I had, uh, pheasants, starlings, and, uh, robins that we would use for our big medium and small birds. And then I put out mice to replicate bats because, you know, bats have so many protections there. No, one's going to ship you frozen bats. Mm. Uh, but we would put these, carcasses out and it's all kind of an equation where you have number of actual fatalities found and then searcher efficiency so i would put these out for my other surveyors and you know let's say they had like a 60% efficiency of finding what i knew was out there and then we knew that a pheasant which rep- represented a large bird lasted 21 days but a mouse, which represented a bat, only lasted three days. Well, you could figure out, if you were smarter than me, um, you know, a- actually how many fatalities were happening per turbine. Um, so it's if you're finding 60% of what we know is out there, they're lasting for X amount of days, you're surveying oh, it once every seven days. I see. Well, then in that seven-day period, the chances of you missing – why amount of birds, um, you yeah, know, that's, that's kind of how they figured out
1: exactly. Oh, yeah. That a, be,
2: a rough estimate of, of what's going on.
1: That makes way more sense now. So it's just increasing the accuracy and being a true mm-hmm. study. Actually, you're removing one of those variables of not what, if you didn't catch it at, at that time right. or when you, when you didn't see one of those animals down or, or even seasonal changes, I'm sure that seasonal, uh, as when those collisions are happening are are impacting, and I suppose that's built into when you go out during that thirty-day period,
2: right? So we we went out during fall migration to start, which you know, like I've seen when the the geese and the sandhill cranes started coming through, we had about a four-day period where we were finding quite a bit, but then they adapted um, and they started avoiding the area and we weren't finding anything the rest of that period. And then winter, not a lot happened. And then interestingly enough, the spring migration where everything was coming back north, that's when we started finding bats. And, mm-hmm. and the bats were only in the agricultural areas. So out here in West Texas, we have a lot of cotton production. And these turbines are built just right out in the middle of these cotton fields. And we were finding quite a bit of bats mm-hmm. in the ag, turbines, but then in the pasture turbines, we weren't finding anything. And then in the summer, it was really just those quail, uh, that had gone blind and, and flew into the towers.
1: So what were some of the major conclusions out of that, that study?
2: At least in our area for the wind farm that I worked on, we, we didn't have a serious effect on, on migration patterns or, uh, native populations, but you know something that's interesting that we've kind of figured out is these birds don't actually collide directly with the turbine uh as those blades turn they create kind of like a suck zone um and the birds actually are pulled up or pulled down into the spin Hmm. so it's the the actual danger zone is much larger than the true height of the turbine
1: Hmm. So they get sucked. I I know there's. Oh, I see. Get sucked down and then hit. So they lose lose that flight control. Sucked down into the blade. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, I see. Interesting.
2: But I, I know there's wind farms up in Wyoming that have a real big problem with eagle collisions. Hmm. But at least out here in West Texas, that's not something we deal with.
1: Is there mitigation? solutions for that or what uh what's being done with that info
2: so at least in texas that data is being used if you know let's say we know that a certain species of bird has a higher uh, tendency to collide with turbines and and they migrate in the middle of the night well then we can shut down x amount of turbines at night so that way that Migration corridor is a little safer. Hmm. Uh, you can you can eliminate a lot of fatalities that way.
1: Hmm. Interesting, and I was surprised to hear you say quail too, right? And and not just your high flying birds, but I I, I ima- imagine quail are not. I, I haven't been growing up around. I've never been around quail. Shot one in my life in Eastern Iowa or Western Iowa. Um, but I've seen very few, know little about them and I just don't imagine them being very high flyers. So is it, is that, was that just kind of anomaly or was it a consistent thing with, I'm thinking trying to think of game species?
2: Yeah. So the bobwhite quail is kind of a, it's a weird collection of problems. So right now quail are dealing with, at least in Texas, um, they're dealing with a an eye worm. They've got a parasite that they're picking up probably in grasshoppers and crickets that gets in behind the eye and eats away at the optical nerve. And so these birds, are they've either completely lost sight or they've got real fuzzy uh, vision. They can't really see what they, where they're going. So the collisions we were finding, they weren't falling very far from the tower. So to me, that tells me that they're hitting at a pretty low height. And I think that they probably just truly didn't know that that tower was there Hmm. and they flew right into it.
1: Hmm. So it's it's just compounding an existing issue of this eye worm. Yeah. So
2: yeah. So the wildlife toxicology lab at Texas tech and the rolling plains uh, quail initiative are, are doing a lot of work trying to figure out what's going on with this parasite can can you do some sort of medicated feed is it do we need to reintroduce you know, some fire regimes that we haven't seen in a hundred years to eliminate a life cycle you know just figuring out what's going on with them because that eye worm is actually the cause of death for these collisions if they didn't have that eye worm they would have avoided the tower altogether
1: Sure. Hmm. Are, and then, are you able to throw that variable out to say that these these really don't count in there, or is it just like we don't have the can't indefinitely so, say that's fact that they're not?
2: Yeah. So we can't throw those fatalities out because you know we're not dissecting these these birds. Um, you know, a collision is a collision to hmm. the EPA. So. All, all that data just gets aggregated in unfortunately you know as a as a wildlife nerd I would love to take these birds and, and start chopping them up and seeing what's going on on the inside but that that just wasn't what the client wanted and it wasn't what the EPA wanted so if we found a dead bird inside our survey area it counted as a fatality
1: huh interesting so what what species or critter uh, is it that is? kind of is interesting the most interesting to you and if you could just study that and work on that on projects related around this one species what would it be
2: if you gave me the option to work with pronghorn antelope i would do it for minimum wage for the rest of my life why is that i
1: think oh, i, then think I totally think they're fascinating as can be
2: yeah i think they're the coolest uh one of the coolest land mammals that we have in North America. You know, they're the only surviving member of North America's antelope family, the speed and just all the adaptations that they have, um, to live in more arid environments.
1: I, would, I think they're really cool. I would totally agree. Totally agree. <laughs> Literally today, uh, I was out shed hunting and, uh, last shed hunt of the year for me, even though it's only May 9th, it's, Moving on to other things, but my wife calls me and my four-year-old says he's got to tell me something about... He wishes it was was hunting season so we could go shoot some bulls, and I I don't have a great hunt picked out for him to go along with, and I was like, maybe I ought to try and find a leftover doe tag, a, a antelope doe tag, and that's what we go do, and that'll be our meat hunt because... Me and I know a few other buddies. We totally agree that that is our favorite wild game to eat, uh, next to axis. Axis deer is probably one of my favorites, but uh, antelope is is up there. It's way higher than than uh, probably most would think. I'd I'd put that, or other people should put that, but it's it's up there. Not on on top of the fascinating features that it has. So I think that's pretty cool. So a good transition into. What's your what's your hunting season look like? That are going include some antelope in it?
2: Well, so I got too busy with work for turkey season this year. My, you know, in Texas, it's all private land, so we got to deal with access and, and things. But the place that I have turkey hunting permissions, uh, he got busy with his personal life, and I got busy with work, and so we kind of just skipped over turkey season, which makes me real sad because I love hunting turkeys Um, but I put in Texas Parks and Wildlife has you know quite a bit of um, not as much as western states but we have some public hunting areas and every year I put in for pronghorn antelope mule deer whitetail um, and then someday probably when I'm 75 I'll finally draw the desert bighorn tag um sure but it's it's three bucks to to get a preference point which is pretty much all i've done the last four years but i've got tags in for or requests in for all four Hmm. of those
1: that's you said texas Mm -hmm. oh you know one thing that in the western hunting world we don't think of even though west texas is you, you do see a lot of guys going down and shooting odd ad and um we don't really think about building up preference points in Texas, honestly. (laughs) And it just had me thinking a little bit is, is that something that has non-resident written all over it? Or is it a pretty uh, resident focused point system?
2: It's, it's pretty resident focused, but then also, you know, pronghorn, perfect example. So I've been putting in since 2019. So this will be my fourth year. And they there's twelve total tags on the Rita Blanca National Grassland, and every year about five thousand people apply. Oh, um, so I mean it's it's a pretty hard draw. Sure. And then you know they have what they call the Texas Slam, which is pronghorn, mule deer, whitetail, and desert bighorn, and there's only one of those a year. Hmm so it's you know building preference points for the more i guess high-end species uh, is is pretty tough but then there's a lot of either sex deer tags and things so i'm sure probably in the next two or three years i'll i'll draw my mule deer uh, tag for one of the wmas but When's, Longhorn and Desert Bighorn will be a long way down the road. Yeah,
1: when's that uh, application season, or is that coming on?
2: It's, you know, I think it's going on right now, or it's about to happen. Uh, most of the the draws start happening late August.
1: Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'll look into it. I got a buddy in Midland, Texas, and I know he's got. Plans of taking me doing some different types of hunts and things, but not really kind of what I'm looking for. So we haven't really decided what, what the, what the thing is we're going to go after when I go visit or, or what kind of the goal is. I can't really afford the odd ad. Um, just those seem to be getting more and more expensive. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of see, I don't know but it's on my list. I know I'm going to be hunting Texas at some point. And it'll be kind of west west Texas somewhere. And I guess like the elk, that's one thing you can go chase after. So <laughs> those, those elk that are non-native that are running all over the place, not all over the place, but there's apparently big big bull elk somewhere over there in West Texas that that uh I don't think they make public land very often.
2: No, there's a state park, uh Davis Mountain State Park that has an elk herd that kind of migrates through pretty regularly, but yeah, they stay on private land because somebody paid a lot of money to have them brought over here.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. So, um, you told me that uh, you had just gotten into hunting. You don't really sound like it. You sound like you, you've been applying for years and talking about it. And, and and as a biologist, makes sense. But you're new to hunting. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I, I grew up on a cotton farm um, and I've been in the outdoors my whole life. Started camping when I was in third grade and, uh, you know, getting outside anytime I could and then real active in the ffa and so i went to school at texas a&m for wildlife management and you know everyone thinks when you go to school for wildlife management you you're going to school to be a game warden and yeah that was just that was never my goal um i wanted to you know do something that i that would leave a mark on one of the wildlife species that i grew up around and for me you know I. Like I said, growing up on a farm, I raised pigs. Like I've always known where my food comes from. Uh, and to me, hunting was just another excuse to get outside and, you know, a, a way that I could be more involved in food acquisition. Um, you know, we, we grew gardens growing up and you can't beat a homegrown tomato i mean if it grows in your backyard there's just something about it that makes it taste that much better and and i think that it's the same for me you know if i can go out in the middle of the woods and, and bring something home that that tastes better than going to the grocery store and, and buying something that's wrapped in plastic uh, so that was that was really the driver was that i just wanted another excuse to get outside
1: sure Um, what's, and I I really want to kind of direct the focus of this conversation and the, and the person reason why I wanted to talk about these things is that most of our, my listeners, I do believe are hunters and they've been hunters. So I want to kind of have us as veteran hunters or, or or the new hunters kind of look at some of these. Some listen to this conversation and, and realize what the mindset is, what's the focus and how the hunting community is changing. And, uh, there's a lot of books and motivational speakers now out there now dealing with, uh, how to deal with change, <laughs> and that was even yeah. uh, one of our regional meetings uh, I had a guest speaker on or in and telling us about dealing with change. And my coworkers are going through things, uh, training dealing with change. <laughs> and I think it's uh, something at any decade could learn from. So it's uh, I want to uh, dive into that a little bit or or, or direct the focus speech just thinking about that. So I was speaking to the listeners there. So your entry point was the food or not the food it necessary that was a a piece to it but was another reason to be outside correct yes sir okay and then the food aspect is the secondary piece the another elevated piece i got that correct yes sir okay so um what has been some of your main sources of information where are you getting the the influence the motivation uh, and then the facts and or and the strategies that you've been kinda implementing in the field.
2: So I think I'll I'll start with a more broad uh information source and then kinda narrow it down to Perfect. you know, the people that have really been my mentors. I mean, obviously I think anybody that's interested in, in hunting or, or wildlife, uh you know, Stephen Ranella, I mean, the guy seems to be you know, everyone's source these days. Uh, I was on the road for work and listened to a Joe Rogan podcast and, and Ranella was on there and uh, I switched over and started listening to his podcast. I didn't even know about the Netflix show for a long time. I was just listening to his podcast and then I started reading some of his books. and Then I found Meat Eater on Netflix and obviously binged every episode, the pronghorn episode, especially, um,
1: with Luke Combs, most recent one.
2: No, well, not the most recent one, the one, oh, where he sure. was in, uh, Wyoming by himself. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, meat eater, those guys, all, all that podcast network, as much time as I spend on the road, um, podcasts and audio books are what keep me sane sometimes when I'm driving. So really diving in, to those podcasts for a while. I listened to Randy Newberg's uh, podcast. Um, you know, so some of those, I don't want to use the term celebrities, but you know, some of those more popular hunting guys, uh, gotten a lot of information from them and, you know, not every podcast is, is interesting or, or has value to me, but you know, I listen to a lot of them. Um, but then, you know, more personally, our mutual friend Corey Kennedy—he's the one actually who took me hunting the very first time. Uh, he took me turkey and pig hunting when he used to live here in Texas, and mm. you know, we we talked a lot, and you know, he's really given me a lot of advice. And
1: he's good at talking. Up. Yes, he is. <laughs> yeah. He's a good yeah, talking. He <laughs> uh, you
2: know, and and he's he's always trying to get me to apply for bighorn and moose and goat tags in Colorado. Uh but him and then I was actually really lucky in 2019 I got to go or maybe 2020, honestly, it's all run together these last three years. Um but I got to go on a managed land doe hunt with uh, Michael Panassi, he's the he's a former uh, president of the Texas BHA. And I had volunteered at some events that they had had in Lubbock and told him that I was a new hunter and that I was you know, willing to put in the work and volunteer and, and do things with BHA. And, you know, I just wanted somebody to mentor me. And he texted me one day and said, Hey, I've got some doe tags on a pretty famous ranch uh, out here in the panhandle. Can you go with me tomorrow? And I was like, sure can called it into work (laughs) real quick said I'm not going to be there tomorrow and he took me out and it's one of the few places I think in Texas where you can really spot and stalk and we spent all day and about 10 a.m. got on a doe and I sent a 270 round right over the top of her head she was gone uh we made sure that my rifle was zeroed in and we walked and walked and walked all day. And right before the sun went down, both of us within the span of about 15 seconds were able to get does. And then, you know, he took me to his house and walked me through kind of the breakdown of, of how to, you know, get all the different cuts and, and everything. And it was just a, I mean, the, honestly it was a life-changing experience you know just because that was the first time that i'd really been from start to finish like i saw that deer alive i'm the one who pulled the trigger i processed it i cooked it i ate it and i mean it was just amazing and i was hooked after that
1: that's really interesting that the bha connection is what what got you there and i'm so glad you said that because I've shared that. I was like, I know that happens, but it's never happened with me. Because I've never gone on one of those projects um, where Rocky Mountain Elk is doing a project. And you all get together to put a guzzler together and, and, and or whatever it is. And that's always been one of those get involved. If you're a new hunter, get involved. And, and there's a community. You have a, a welcoming community right there. Go ahead. Go for it. Uh, it's, it's a place to go meet people. And so it's cool to hear that that worked. Like that was a thing, a a connection that came out of that. That's pretty neat.
2: Well, and I think for people in Texas, especially because it's 98% private land. I mean, if you don't have thousands of dollars to shell out for a lease, you've got to make connections. Mm. Um, You know, there's so much money that goes into hunting leases here in Texas, whether it's a little hundred acre place or, you know, some of these 50,000 acre places. Um, you know, I think Jerry Jones has a lease on the King Ranch. He has 30,000 acres all to himself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just, there's no way that I could ever be a part of that. that. I'm priced out. By a you know a magnitude of ten, um, so to me it's I had to get out and, and make those connections and and thank goodness Corey was my boss at the time um, and, and we just clicked right off the bat and you know it wasn't thirty days from my hire date that we started talking about hunting and, and getting that first turkey hunt planned.
1: What uh, took 30 days, Corey? Come on. <laughs> took 30 days to talk about hunting? Oh, man. <laughs> I just give wow, him a crap. He, he's a busy guy. At the time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'll, I'll cut him some slack. <laughs> I've given him some crap because uh, he's been... He was about to be a new dad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Yep, absolutely. Um, and that'll do it to you. Absolutely. You got to make some sacrifices at that point in, in your life, so. Um, so you, you're, you absorbed a lot of media, the, the social or the, that's, I don't want to say social media, but the, the, um, the, the content that's put out there by, let's say influencers and and professional hunters and the, whatever they're the celebrities we, we said. So, and I don't know, whatever we call them, I don't really care, but the, uh, and the, and having mentors, that was another big piece to that. You kind of got the whole, whole gamut there. There's so many people that do not get that. You had a um, conservation group connection. You had a the pieces that you're going out and researching yourself, as well as a mentor or even two there. So that that y- y- you got kind of, I-, I wouldn't say the the spoon fed piece, but you got the you got the whole whole piece there a whole chunk to to be able to get you in so that's really really awesome that it worked out in that way but when you come upon things that you just still don't understand or and having your science background i'm sure helps out a lot with the animal behavior and and that sort of thing but and i don't know what your your background was with firearms but i'm i'm dealing with uh an individual that it's just doesn't get the application period, doesn't, or the time or the process, doesn't understand that, uh, doesn't understand, um, a, the, we, I learned something too. I never had a gun with a, uh, three position safety and I have one now. I have two now, uh, really kind of a cool little thing. And so when we were gun shopping, kind of learning all these different things and, that person needed someone to, to jump in. So when you don't understand something that, that is uh, new to you in this hunting world, what do you do? How do you handle it?
2: A lot of Google. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to Corey. Oh, uh, Corey is going to be my go-to every time when it comes to that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, just reading, I, I read like crazy, whether it's, articles or blog posts or books I, I mean I'm always just trying to consume more information whether that's science-based or techniques or, or you know just reading about Wyoming cutting 11,000 pronghorn and tax. tags um, they just announced I guess on Friday uh, oh really and, and you know that was like okay well i have always thought that Wyoming pronghorns would be kind of my introduction into Western public land hunting. And now it's like, well, that may not be the case anymore or it may not be the case for a while. So it's just, it's reading, reading anything I can get my hands on. is is kind of how I approach stuff like that.
1: And when you go to somebody with a question, what approach do they have uh, that you appreciate? What works the best? What approach?
2: For me, I've learned the best hands on. Um, you know with Corey living in Colorado and me in texas, it's it's mostly just conversations, you know just talking about it. Um, I don't really have, I guess uh, a mentor here in Texas that i that I interact with in person very often. So I, I can't really answer that
1: yeah and I'm just trying to think uh, and I I think my way through this all the time it's almost like almost like I'm dating someone and I don't want to say the wrong thing <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, try to have that conversation with them that is not especially with women I don't want to be demeaning I want to talk to them like they're they're just another hunter uh, I don't want to be demeaning they I want the playing field to be open and welcoming. Um, I don't want to talk over them. I want to find them where it's just like an education. You find someone where they're at and you bring them up with you. So trying to find where someone is at can be kind of tricky sometimes. Cause you're like, I really don't know the baseline here. So some people, and that's, that's really the, the lesson here I want for listeners is the meeting someone where, where they're at, but, also, having an approach that doesn't contain a lot of bias or opinions—have you found that to be beneficial? And I'm, to- I could be totally wrong. Maybe that's fine. But some of those really opinionated or bias answers been helpful at all? Like, how'd you end up with a 270? Like, it was did somebody say 270? That's it, best gun out there. Got to have a 270.
2: So I, the 270, I had a couple of my friends that that were really into guns. Uh, They had grown up hunting, but they really just, they're gun guys. And at the time, I guess it was back in 2017. That was when I decided like, I want to get into hunting. Uh, I I hadn't met Corey yet. And I have another uh, family friend in Colorado Springs that has taught me how to fly fish and one of these days we're going to get out and hunt together, but I hadn't really gotten involved with any kind of mentors, but I just thought, you know what, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to get a gun. Uh, And little background there. I'm the oldest of nine. I did not grow up around guns. I was in college before I really kind of got exposed to it, not because of any kind of bias or, or, you know, political beliefs or anything. It's just, when you got nine kids, there's not a lot of money uh, for for guns and ammo. You know, you're you're too busy trying to feed an army. And so, I finally, as an adult, you know, I was like, okay, I've got a little extra money. Like, I'm gonna teach myself to shoot. I want to get get that piece out of the way, so that way, when I finally have access, you know, I can jump right in. And so, I talked to a couple people, and they just said, you know, a two seventy. You can shoot anything in Texas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if that really applies to the Nilgai, but um, at least all the native species.
1: Totally yeah. would. And I, I know Nilgai are tough as nails, but a two seventy is such a great gun. That's such a great, that's a good round. It's kind of funny. That's exactly, this person I'm kind of referencing, that's exactly what they bought. I tried so hard not to be biased. I wanted them to make their own decision on it but they were trusting me with the information that I know. I've shot a 30 out 6 my entire life. I said that's a great round. Um 308 it's a great round. A 270 is a great round. Uh and I let them kind of decide make make that gun availability kind of be part of that decision maker but uh yeah that's an interesting interesting uh conversation you can have with a new hunter uh and, and take that opinion of people that you trust. So you you had some, some people that were, were shooters that you trusted to, to give you that info. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I mean, they, exactly what you said, like in terms of ammo availability, 270, you're going to find it everywhere. It's not a real specialized round. Um, 270, you'll take down anything that I might have gotten an opportunity to hunt here in Texas. And, so I was like, okay, this is perfect. This is the the rifle I'm going to learn to shoot on. Right. And so, you know, that's, that's how that happened. I mean, and I love my 270. That's I mean, it's a great rifle.
1: I'm even considering, I've got two 300 WSMs and I'm kind of considering trading one in for a 270 just because I don't have one. I think it would be kind of nice to have one. And I've never had a. Uh, oh, Weatherby, but I, that's the gun that we just ended up with. This Weatherby Weatherby Vanguard 270. Um, that that person I was working with ended up buying. It's like that. It just looks like a sweet gun. I really like a lot of the features on it, and might be something I'm interested in. So, if anyone's out there has one, I'd love to love to get some opinions on it. Uh, another question for you: Was there anything any veteran hunters maybe either? even growing up or before you became a hunter during the early stages of that, were there any things hunters would say that was a barrier to you or you just, even now you just, I just don't like anything in that, in that world.
2: Yeah. I I think the big thing for me is mixing the alcohol uh, with the hunts. Like, you know, the guys that take a backpack full of Miller lights to the, deer stand um, that was never something that appealed to me Uh, I just I don't have anything against drinking I don't have anything against people hunting and and drinking but it was just never really for me And, and to me a lot of the I guess the older hunters that I knew growing up it seemed like hunting was more of a social and killing event than the connection with the food and, and connection with nature that I really look at it as, uh, and, in same thing, you know, out here in Texas, it's a lot of this flat mesquite scrub stuff. Everyone sits in, in deer stands and that means that you're sitting for several hours before anything happens. And I understand how the social drinking side of it, you know happens because you're just you're bored with your buddies in the deer stand but that that part really never appealed to me and the same thing you know at night uh everyone's sitting around getting hammered
1: that was just not something that I thought sounded fun either that's a i for and the Texas listeners probably hate me, but sounds like it's very prevalent down there uh learning from my my buddy in uh in texas that that's that's a pretty common thing <laughs> very common thing texas loves texans love their beer which is great too <laughs> we do too in south dakota but uh and and the colorado listeners i know they do as well but i totally agree i mean i do on my overnights i will throw uh like a six pack in the in the cooler and i think one at the end of the whole thing gets drank it's like, I don't ever touch it. Uh, it's cause I'm hunting solo and, and I'll maybe get back to the truck and, and have one at the end of the end of the thing. It's, and it's almost like forcing myself to do it. I almost like just chill out for a minute, drink a beer, the hunt's over, uh, and just sit here in the tailgate. <laughs> um, so that's a kind of a forced thing sometimes just to slow down. And that's my goal with it. But I totally agree with you. And, and I've, uh, interacted a lot with the, um, there's some hunt, say hunt, hunter education coordinator people and, uh, or an individual that I worked with. And he, that is the biggest thing that just drives it, even drives him away from, from hunting is that mix of alcohol with hunting that if you're sitting there, I can see the, the allure to it of, we're just sitting there. got nothing else to do, but doesn't really fit with my style of hunting. So it, it, uh, yeah, that can that can sure turn people off. So,
2: right. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I I don't question or, or wanna insult anybody and in, in their traditions, you know. What I mean oh, no. I think that I totally think that's agree. the great thing about hunting, right? It's like everybody gets to get into this and, and do it their way, you know, as long as they're doing it ethically and following, you know, whatever their state's laws are. Like that's just drinking is just not for me personally. You know, and like, I mean, I I don't like getting up early period, but I I dang sure don't want to get up at 4.30 in the morning after I drank until midnight. You know, that's just, that's just not for me.
1: Yeah. So next piece here for you. What's the difference in your mind between hunters that have learned from their moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas when they were 12 years old, the first time they could go out? What's the difference in, in the hunters that went that path? versus adult onset hunters like yourself what this is totally opinion totally fine with it <laughs> just what your viewpoint what do you see uh is the difference
2: i think the big thing is people that grew up hunting don't understand kind of the the roadblocks to getting into it you know i mean i have got friends that are like well, why don't you just get a hunting lease you know I was like well i don't have dads and granddads that have been working with a landowner for the last 35 years and, and have a a good deal. Like I've got to get in on the ground floor somewhere and, and and meet somebody that can, that's willing to either a, let me trade sweat for access or B is going to give me, you know, some sort of lease fee that I can afford and is digestible. Um, I think that's, probably the biggest thing but then the other side of it is i think that with for adult onset hunters at least for the people i know that have gotten into it later in in their lives is the connection to nature and the connection to the food versus the connection to family traditions um you know it's like well every year we go to deer camp and and it's my dad my uncles my granddad my great uncles Whatever you know, like to them, that's a that's their family tradition, and there's more of a family connection there. Whereas for me, it's nature, it's food, it's being involved in wildlife, actual tangible wildlife management. Um, so yeah, I'd say those two things.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's a cool piece. The science pieces is, is later in life drawn me in as well as I earned those degrees. I was a hunter well before I was, was uh, involved in the science world. Um, how, how do you think with, with the number of new hunters that we have, how do you think that's going to change the hunting community?
2: I think it'll, that's a good question. Because Um, I was,
1: I was talking about this today that I was talking about it with another wildlife biologist that this R3 thing, The R three, some people are just They're starting to get some kickback and some, I don't know if we want to have more hunters, but the baby boomers are the majority of our hunters. They are such a large number of our hunters and they're aging out. And so we are trying very, very hard to plan ahead for these next 10, 20 years where those guys are gone and they're not hunting anymore. So to have a, the next generation is, we're in a pivotal moment here to, to keep the next generations going. And and that's been a conversation for years and years. You always hear that, get the next generation out in the field. And it's always been with youth and everybody, but it's with 20 somethings and 30 somethings so that they're hunting for the next 30, 40 years. That, that, uh, we're, we're maybe... Trying, we're, we're dealing with uh, um, those people that are they're aging out. So um, I'm really curious to see just as people jump into the middle of this this bell curve, or the, I don't know if it's a bell curve, but um, in, in the middle here, not being 12 and and growing up when in, in, in hunting families, but jumping in with outside influences and opinions, where this lands us as a community. Uh, you get folks like yourself who are passionate about learning and want to dive into reading. Uh, so after you go through a decade or two of learning and diving in and reading and reading and reading, I bet you're going to do something with that info. You're going to share it. You're going to uh, maybe get on a, I don't know, I, I've just met you over the phone a minute ago, but um, maybe that's that's something where someday you're on the BHA board and you're the guy taking somebody uh it to the Oklahoma panhandle. Um, it, it's just a crazy scenario, but you never know. You, you're that individual that did that versus grew up 12 years old, went on the first hunt and so on. Like my brothers, my brothers don't really hunt anymore. They love the idea. They'd love to go do it, but they don't really want to work hard doing it. I don't think. Um, and so they've kind of went away from it cause I don't think they had that same appreciation, and I've just stuck with it and it's always been my thing. So it's been there. Uh, and I keep wanting to learn more, learn more, challenge myself. And and I think uh, that, that those people jumping in the middle, at 20, 30-year-olds in the middle is going to do something. It's going to have some some big changes. I just don't know what that's going to be or how that's going to look. So I'm kind of curious.
2: Yeah. You know, I think the big thing is, So I'm 30. So, I mean, I, I've had Facebook since I was in high school, Uh, you know, Instagram, like the social media aspect of it. I think that probably a big change you're going to see is the advocacy of hunting and and what it, what it actually means for wildlife management and population health and, and the different components of, money that gets brought in, you know, Pittman Robertson, like you can, you've got all these anti-gun people that are also environmentalists and it's like, okay, you, you ban all guns, all ammo. Where's, where's that money going to come from? If Pittman Robertson funds are, are going into that wildlife conservation uh, that you're so passionate about. And I, I think you're going to see people like me that understand all the different components of it. And it's not just about posting, you know, big antlers on Instagram or, or getting drunk at deer camp with your, your brothers. It's, it's all about the whole connection between I'm buying that hunting license. I'm buying that ammo, that excise tax that is already on that ammo is going into Wildlife conservation. I'm buying the duck stamp and that's protecting wetlands. You, all these different components that I don't think anti hunters and a lot of the general public really understand. And so you've got people like me that are coming in and they want that connection with nature. They want that connection with their food. And I think you're going to see a, a shift in the advocacy for hunting. I think, you know, what is it? There's like 11 million hunters in the united states like it's a a major major minority and then you've got on the flip side the radical antis and then in the middle you got 80 percent of the country that doesn't really have an opinion one way or the other and i think that my generation is going to be able to really kind of talk to those non-hunters that don't have an opinion and explain how important it is and, and those non-hunters, they're the ones that are going to go vote when some of these radical, um, you know, bills and things get presented. And, and we've got to be able to tell them, no, this is not good long-term for wildlife. Uh, you know, going back to my biology side, look at what California did when they banned mountain lion hunting. You know, the state now pays to kill more mountain lions then they got paid for hunters to do it all um, right you know and, and it's those i think that there's a real big just like with food there's a big disconnect between the natural world and modern society and i think that you're going to see that connection kind of re- be rebuilt i hope
1: that would be great that'd be absolutely great <laughs> i hope that's the case but i agree with you. And I think there's a really valid point there that I hadn't really thought of that the 30 somethings and 20 somethings can connect with the, uh, with the non hunters and not to say that the, the always been hunting crowd can't or the baby boomers can't, but I think there's a lot of power in, in those, those folks that, that dive into a new world with a lot of thought put into it. I see a lot of new hunters putting a lot of energy and, and, and thinking through what they're doing. So I I think there's a lot of conversations, uh, happening around the decision-making of joining that, that hunting community. And with that, having that conversation with those, those non hunters, I don't like my next question or two I had for you, but I'm going to skip to this one what conversations have you had with some of the non hunters in your family or friends? And, uh, what does that look like in, in defending or describing what you, what you've been doing?
2: So I'm, I'm really the only hunter in my family. Um, you know, like I said, we did, didn't grow up with guns and it's just not something that they've, that they've been exposed to or really shown any interest in. And, I wouldn't say I've ever had to defend my interests in hunting. Um, you know, every now and then you'll get jokes about how expensive all my hobbies are. But um, I think that they, they really enjoyed when I was able to hand out deer meat and mm-hmm. it was, it was cool for them to see that connection. Was like, Chaz brought this home. Chaz did this. Um, I've got some friends that, they're not hunters, they're not outdoorsmen, but they thought it was really cool that I was working to bring my own food home. Uh, I, but yeah, like I said, I, I haven't really had to defend myself to anybody.
1: But that's cool, and I think that even describes our last point that we we're talking about, that most people are right in the middle. So when they had somebody they they cared about, loved, and and know and trust, dive into the hunting world... And then bring this home and shared it. What did it do? Exactly. Right, and
2: now, and now that they've seen firsthand, like here's a pound of hamburger, and that it, it's tangible. It, when the time comes, and and we need to call on those family members to go vote for you know whatever or vote against whatever radical um, bill may be out there we've got advocates now they're not directly involved but they've seen the benefits and they understand the importance and they're going to go vote
1: Mm. in favor of of my lifestyle and you've got a leg up on a lot of people being a wildlife biologist and being able to know the value of predators Cause that is going to be a conversation for the, probably the remainder of our lives. Is, oh, is absolutely predator hunting and having to just defend that or explain it and to know, know the facts behind why that's important or, or uh, why we need to have it. So again, and in
2: Texas, Texas is going to be the Petri dish, right? Because we've got black bears coming in from Mexico, Arkansas and Oklahoma we're gonna have Mexican gray wolves come over from New Mexico, probably within the next five ten years. Naturally, they're not gonna be introduced here. Um, it's not like Colorado. That's yeah, yeah. It, we're not gonna have ballot box biology like that. But I mean, they will be here, and there's gonna be conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually, Texas will have a bear season for sure. I don't know if in uh, the foreseeable future, if we'll ever consider a wolf uh season but i mean a bear season will be something that texas has to consider probably in the next decade interesting and and so being able to advocate for responsible management of that population is going to be important
1: Hmm. that's interesting last question for you what advice do you have for lifelong hunters And, and uh getting folks like yourself out or being a mentor or or, uh, um, just chatting with, with non hunters, what, what do you, what advice do you have for them?
2: I would say the best piece of advice I could give to somebody who's done this a long time is don't be a gatekeeper, you know, like let people in it. I know there's a lot of conversations going on. Like, I don't want to give up my spot. Uh, I'm in several fishing groups on facebook and that's the biggest complaint is that someone brought someone new out and they found a spot and and now there's new people fishing uh, in the same bass holes and it's that's not what it's about you know like we need to be working to get more people involved and more people outside and and rebuilding that connection with the natural world so i mean i'd say just have conversations. Don't be afraid to introduce someone new. I'm not saying, you know, you got to take them to your mule deer hidey hole in the mountains, but um, you know, if people have questions or they want to talk about how to get access, teach someone how to have a conversation with a landowner and, and and work on negotiating access. I mean, that's something I would love to still work on. Is figuring out how do I get access without relying on another friend who has family land. Um, yeah. You know, just don't be a gatekeeper.
1: That's such a hard thing. Cause sometimes that access just happens, <laughs> it just happens. And Hunter's like, I don't know how to describe it. just, just networking, chatting with somebody, but no, anyway, yeah, that's what, which, which
2: is what I've wanted to, you know, that's what I've always tried to do is, is network. Uh, but <clears throat> it's, it's like, you know for every 100 people you talk to you might get one response type thing
1: yeah it's never on purpose either never really right yeah yeah the, the landowner i was shed hunting on today which that was a whole coincidence that i got the shed hunt on this private and then go to he called me while i was hiking he said oh i got another spot you need to check out go to the neighbors here And blah blah blah. okay and walked over there and found three white elk horns it's pretty cool uh, but No, sorry. I didn't mean to make that anything about me and my story. So I wanted to end on your advice there. So I like that. Uh, Be open.
2: Well, and I I just, I have a perfect story to kind of follow up on. Oh, yeah. You know, I've got, so I'm really into wildlife photography, and I have a photography lease where um, I've got a landowner that lets me go out and he's got about 180 acres, and I can spend all day out there taking pictures. And his wife is, very anti hunting. Um, then I'm just slowly working first. I'm to get access to shoot wild pigs. Um, that's what I'm working on right now. But then, you know, eventually I'd love to turn that into a Turkey spot or a right. dove spot. Right. Um, but it's just, I'm just working real slow, you know, making sure that I'm always upholding the rules and, and you know, the expectations he has for his property and, you know, making sure that I respect the property, just slowly working on that um but i mean there's that's another way that that i I would say that people could get access is let someone on your land for something else Uh, whether it's photography or if you have a fishing spot like let people on and and let them earn your trust Mm. yeah Uh, you know i think a lot of landowners have been burned and and that's why at least in texas that's why they charge so much because they can and because in the past they've they've had people that trash their property and they want to make sure that the people that are out there can cover whatever damages and yeah. so just earn people's trust.
1: Well, Chaz, uh, I want to thank you for coming on. I, I, uh, I pulled away with a couple, uh, uh good talking points for, for another conversation down the road. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, a, uh, I enjoyed that. I had a, I got some, I got some pieces there that I learned, so appreciate it.
2: Yes, sir. I had a good time. Thank you for having me on.
1: All right. Well, we'll talk to you later. To land, All right, Clint. Thank you. Ground,